This podcast is brought to you by the Reform Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reform Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reform views based on the Word of God and the Reform Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following is a sermon preached on a Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day. For more sermons, see our sermon audio page. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to them to be notified as future messages are published. We welcome you to join us on Sundays for worship at 9.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org. Also, you can follow us on our Hope Protestant Reformed Church Facebook page. And you can email the Reform Witness Committee with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you. Turn with me in the Holy Scriptures this morning to the second chapter of the book of Genesis. We're going to read two passages of Scripture this morning. We're going to read Genesis 2, beginning at verse 18, through to the end of the chapter. And then we're going to read the first 12 verses of Matthew 19. Genesis 2, at verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found in help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now turn with me to the New Testament Scriptures, the 19th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew 19. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coasts of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man 
to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement, and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. His disciples say unto him, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. But he said unto them, All men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb, And there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. There ends our reading of the Word of God this morning. On the basis of these scriptures, as well as the whole of the Word of God, is the teaching of Lord's Day 41. Let's read Lord's Day 41 once more. What doth the seventh commandment teach us? That all uncleanness is accursed of God. And that therefore we must with all our hearts detest the same and live chastely and temperately, whether in holy wedlock or in single life. Doth God forbid in this commandment only adultery and such like gross sins, since both our body and soul are temples of the Holy Ghost? He commands us to preserve them pure and holy. Therefore, he forbids all unchaste actions, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever can entice men thereto. Although the seventh commandment has important implications for those of God's people who are single, The seventh commandment has important implications, especially for those of God's people who are married. The seventh commandment itself is addressed 
to those in the congregation who are married. For the seventh commandment is, thou shalt not commit adultery. Adultery is the sin against the seventh commandment by those who are married. And that is the grossest form of disobedience to the seventh commandment. Undoubtedly, this most serious sin against the seventh commandment is the form of the sin that is becoming most common in the church. For a long time, the world has disregarded the will of God as regards marriage. For a long time, from the beginning already, the world has shown its disdain for the will of God expressed in the seventh commandment. This disdain for the will of God in the seventh commandment showed itself immediately in the generations of Cain. The polygamy and the adultery that polygamy is showed itself in the generations of Cain right from the beginning. And the rejoicing in this wickedness. But this form of the sin against the seventh commandment also becomes more and more accepted in the professing church. Among those who confess to be Christians, this sin, the sin of adultery, becomes more and more accepted. The form that this sin takes is especially the form of the remarriage of those who are divorced. That is especially the sin against the seventh commandment in our day. This sin becomes more and more accepted as the church more and more conforms herself to the wicked world in which we live. And this sin is accepted in the world. This sin becomes more and more accepted in the church as the church sets aside the authority, the binding authority of the Word 
of God. So soon as the authority of the Word of God is set aside, this sin, the sin against the seventh commandment, especially the form of ungodly divorce and the remarriage that inevitably follows, shows itself. Our Lord Himself calls divorce and remarriage adultery. He does that in the passage that we read. Matthew 19, verse 9. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery by calling unbiblical divorce adultery and by calling remarriage adultery. Jesus is including divorce and remarriage under the prohibition of the seventh commandment. But the sin against the seventh commandment that takes the form of unbiblical divorce and unbiblical remarriage is so grievous a sin because it is disdain for the covenant of God. Marriage, our earthly marriages, are to be a type of the covenant of God established between Himself sovereignly with His church. I call your attention this morning to the covenant of marriage. Let's notice, first of all, that this covenant is a God-established covenant. Let's notice, secondly, that it is an unbreakable covenant. And let's notice, finally, that it is a covenant of love and friendship. The covenant of marriage. God is the one who sovereignly joins a man and a woman in marriage. This is the language of our reformed form for marriage, the language with which that form begins. 
God brings to every man his wife, and God brings to every woman her husband, as much as it was God who in the garden brought Eve to Adam and gave her to Adam to be his wife. It is not ultimately the state who joins a man and a woman in marriage, although Reformed Christians recognize, and the Reformed Church has always recognized, the role, the legitimate role that the state plays in marriage. That's why even today, Reformed Christians obtain a marriage license from the state and see to it that that marriage license is filled out and is returned to the state. Nevertheless, it is not ultimately the state who joins a man and a woman in marriage. Neither is it ultimately the church who joins a man and a woman in holy matrimony. Although certainly the church has a role to play and ministers of the gospel legitimately perform wedding ceremonies. Ministers of the gospel officiate at the ceremony at which vows are spoken by the two who are being united in marriage. And ministers of the gospel pronounce the two husband and wife. There is a role that the church plays in marriage. Neither is it the case that the persons themselves who are married join themselves together in marriage. Although certainly it is true that the two who are married must willingly enter into the marriage state. And although it is true that the two who are married speak solemn vows to each other. Nevertheless, it is not the man and the woman who become husband and wife in marriage who join themselves. But it is God. God himself, who joins 
a man and a woman in marriage. The two couples from the congregation who will be united in marriage this week will be united by God in marriage. This is the biblical. This is the reformed view of marriage. Genesis 2 makes this plain. It was God who performed that first wedding ceremony. It was God who united Adam and Eve as husband and wife. And still today, not only does God bring in His providence, bring the two together, but it is God Himself who unites them as husband and as wife. Marriage has been established by God as a union between one man and one woman. Marriage is an exclusive relationship. That, too, is plain from the institution of marriage in the beginning. Genesis 2. God joined one man, and God joined one woman. And that this is the will of God is plain from the rest of Scripture, especially those passages of Scripture that contain explicit teaching regarding marriage. Marriage is an exclusive relationship. There is a push today for the recognition of same-sex marriages. This is based fundamentally on the evolutionary view of man. Man has evolved, man has developed to such a state that marriage, as we customarily understand it, has now pretty much served its purpose. We ought not to suppose, at least, that marriage is the only intimate relationship to be recognized by the state. And the state ought also to recognize on a par with marriage between a man and a woman, marriage between men or marriage between two women. This violates nature itself. This contradicts the very nature 
with which God has created man and woman. But more importantly, this violates the will of God. Marriage has been established by God as a relationship in which the sexual aspect of man's nature comes to expression. God has made man, we saw last time, with this kind of nature. Man is different than the angel. Sex is not raw. It is not dirty. It is not something that belongs to the baser part of man's nature. Sex is good. But it is good within the marriage relationship. This good gift of God is to be enjoyed in the bond of marriage, in the relationship that God himself establishes. Condemned by the seventh commandment, condemned by the will of God in the seventh commandment, is sexual activity before marriage and condemned by the will of God in the seventh commandment is sexual activity outside of the bond of marriage. But God has established marriage in such a way that those who are married are to be married in the Lord. In the Lord. That too is plain from Genesis 2. The two who were united by God in marriage were spiritually one. And that will of God is a will of God for as long as the human race exists. We must marry in the Lord. This does not mean that the marriages of unbelievers are not marriages, or that marriage between one believer and one unbeliever is not a legitimate marriage. Those are legitimate marriages. And that's because marriage is a creation ordinance. The church has always taken that view. And we 
must take that view. That was the teaching of the Apostle Paul. When those who under his missionary preaching came to be converted, and as happened, only one member of the marriage was converted. The Apostle Paul did not say to them, get out of the marriage. Leave that unbelieving spouse. He did no such thing. But he said, remain in the marriage. Live in the marriage. An exemplary life. In the hope, of course, that you will convert the unbelieving spouse. But even if that does not happen, remain faithful in the marriage. And the apostle went on to teach in 1 Corinthians 7, that in that sort of a relationship, the children were to be regarded as covenant children. Those children are holy, he says. It is also God's will that believers marry in the Lord because God has established the marriage relationship as a picture of his covenant relationship to his church. That is the fundamental thing. That is the teaching of the prophet in Malachi 2, verse 14. He says there, Yet ye say, Wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. Not only does the prophet teach there that our marriages are a picture of the covenant of God between His church, the glorious, the most intimate relationship between God and His people in Christ. But He teaches there that marriage itself is a covenant relationship. Those who are united in marriage are united in a covenant relationship. There is a bond between them that is like the bond between Christ and His church. Not only are Our earthly marriages 
a type of God's covenant with His church and people, but our earthly marriages are actually the means by which God's covenant is realized in the line of the generations of believers. That, too, belongs to the blessed reality of the marriage of God's people. Not only are they a picture of God's covenant, but they are actually the means by which God's covenant is realized. That belongs to God's purpose in marriage. That is not the only purpose of God in marriage. Marriage has as its purpose the love and the friendship between husband and wife in the marriage. That blessedness, that relationship. Not only is marriage a type of the reality of marriage, that too is the case, but it is also true that one of the purposes of marriage is the continuation in our generations of the covenant of grace. For this reason, couples who refuse to have children or for selfish and carnal reasons refuse to have children sin against the will of God in the seventh commandment. There are couples who cannot have children. Couples who earnestly desire to fulfill this aspect of the will of God in the seventh commandment who are unable to have covenant children. That is a heavy and a grievous burden we must be sensitive to the burden that these couples bear. We must pray for them so that God will give them the grace to bear this heavy burden. But ordinarily, it is the will of God that our earthly marriages are the means by which his covenant is realized. That belongs to God's will in the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery because adultery is an attack on and adultery fundamentally is disobedience against the will of God in marriage. 
that God's people bring forth the seed of the covenant. That's why it is the case that the children are so grievously affected by the ungodly divorce of their parents that's recognized by the apostle in Malachi chapter 2 where he goes on to speak of the treachery of the ungodly divorces that were going on among God's people as having their effect against the children, against the children. And that's also why immediately after he speaks of the truth concerning marriage, we read, in Matthew 19, that they brought their little children to Jesus. They brought their little children to Jesus. And that's directly connected to Jesus' instruction concerning marriage and divorce in the earlier verses. Because the truth maintained in our marriages the truth that marriage is for life, the truth that divorce and unbiblical remarriage is adultery, is an attack on the children of the covenant. In the seventh commandment, God raises up a guard not only to marriage, but a guard to covenant children whom it is God's will be brought forth in marriage. Because marriage is a God-established covenant, it follows that it is an unbreakable covenant. God's covenant is unbreakable. It follows from the truth that our earthly marriages are a picture of God's covenant, that our earthly marriages are also unbreakable covenants. Marriage is for life. This is the vow that Reformed believers take when they marry. Not that they will remain married as long as their love shall last. Not that. No Reformed minister may marry a couple who desires to speak that vow at their wedding, no, the vow is that they will remain married so long as they live until death 
do them part. Divorce is sin. It is sin against God whose institution marriage is. Men have all kinds of good things to say about divorce to say today and the necessity of divorce and the importance of the two who are divorced going on with their lives after they are divorced. The Bible does not have good things to say about divorce. In Malachi chapter 2, God through the prophet says, I hate putting away. That's God's view of divorce. And that ought to be our view also of divorce. Not only is divorce sin against God, but it is sin against our neighbor, our closest neighbor. That's why the prophet Malachi in Malachi 2 calls divorce treachery. Treachery is the sin of lying and doing violence against your neighbor. Divorce is also sin because it is violence, as I've already said, against the children of divorce. That's verse 15 of Malachi chapter 2. And did not he make them one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit? And wherefore one? That he might seek a godly seed. A godly seed. There is one and only one exception to the Bible's, to God's forbidding of divorce. That one exception is adultery, unrepented of adultery. That's Matthew 19, verse 9. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. That one exception clearly is adultery, not mental cruelty, not we just don't get along, we're incompatible, not she's a nag and a battle axe, and I can't take it anymore, not he's inconsiderate, and besides that, he's an alcoholic and a brute when he drinks, not incapacitating illness or injury that makes it impossible for a husband or a wife to function sexually, not multiple sclerosis, not he or she is in a vegetative state as the result of a car accident. None of these things. One thing, and that one thing is unrepented of adultery. That alone constitutes biblical grounds for divorce. Although the Bible allows divorce on one ground, it absolutely forbids all 
remarriage. There are no biblical grounds for remarriage. Remarriage after divorce is absolutely forbidden. This is the witness that the church must give. This is the witness that the Protestant Reformed churches are called to give. This is God's will in the seventh commandment. Remarriage is forbidden because marriage is for life. Nothing except death dissolves the marriage bond. If someone remarries while their original spouse is living, they are guilty of adultery. This may be permitted by the laws of the land, but this is absolutely forbidden by the law of God. There are reasons for the Bible's prohibition of remarriage. One reason is that it precludes the possibility of repentance and reconciliation. We ought to be sensitive, more sensitive, I think, than often we are to this as a ground of Scripture forbidding remarriage. This is what the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11. And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband, but, and if she depart, implied on the one biblical ground, adultery, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Reconciliation to teach that after divorce, divorce even on the one biblical ground, it's permitted to remarry, destroys, effectively destroys the possibility of reconciliation. They're coming together again in the way of repentance. The second reason why remarriage is forbidden is exactly because marriage is a picture of the covenant of God. And God's covenant is an unconditional covenant. God's covenant is an everlasting covenant. Never is the covenant of God broken. This prohibition of remarriage includes even the innocent party, what is called the innocent party, the party that was not directly responsible for the breakup of the marriage. There are some who contend that although Scripture generally forbids remarriage, it does allow remarriage on the one ground of the innocent party, the adultery of the other party. Appeal is made to Jesus' word in, Genesis, in Matthew 19, verse 9. Look at that with me. 
And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery, and whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. Now appeal is made to this verse in order to justify the remarriage of the innocent party. There are reasons why it ought to be plain that this verse does not support the teaching of the remarriage of the innocent party. In the first place, the two parallel passages were running late. You read them on your own. Mark 10, verse 11, and Luke 16, verse 18. The parallel passages to this instruction of Jesus, both of them teach clearly that marriage is for life. They do not even mention this matter of fornication. So the teaching of the parallel passages forbid all remarriage after divorce. In the second place, we ought to notice the location of that exception clause, except it be for fornication. Notice, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication. The exception clause modifies putting away. There's one exception to putting away, and that one exception is fornication. Matthew 19, verse 9 does not read, Whosoever shall put away his wife and shall marry another, except it be for fornication, committeth adultery. The exception clause does not modify also marrieth another. It does not. The location of the exception clause in Matthew 19 verse 9 indicates very clearly that it modifies only and shall put away his wife. No remarriage. And thirdly, there's the teaching that follows in verses 10 through 12, of the eunuch. Jesus teaches there that there are some who are eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He's referring to those about whom he has just spoken, who are divorced on the biblical ground, and then remain eunuchs the rest of their lives for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In the end, it is impossible to hold to the remarriage of the innocent party without opening the door all the way to all remarriage. Not only has history shown this, but the position itself implies this. Consider, if the innocent party is permitted to remarry, that can only be because Divorce has dissolved the marriage bond, has dissolved the previous marriage. Therefore, he's permitted to remarry. But if divorce has dissolved the marriage, it has dissolved it not just for the innocent party, 
but for the other party as well. Therefore, divorce dissolves the marriage, and both the innocent party and the guilty party are permitted to remarry. That violates altogether the teaching of Scripture. One ground for remarriage. Absolutely no ground for remarriage. And that's because the covenant is an everlasting covenant. And that's because God's covenant is a covenant of abiding friendship. Oh, this is the great positive calling of the seventh commandment. We must live together, people of God, in our marriages, in love. That's what we are called to. It isn't just, don't commit adultery, but it's love your wife. Live with your wife in such a way that you live in a bond of friendship, a bond of fellowship. That means not simply that you don't forsake her for somebody else, but it means that you live in love. Gently nourishing and cherishing her. And for the wise in the congregation, not only willingly submitting yourself to the authority of your husband, but loving him. Being the companion that he needs. Abide with him in friendship and fellowship. And yet we know how far short we fall. We know what sinners we are as regards the will of God in the seventh commandment. Sinners against our spouses and sinners against God and Christ, whose glorious and perfect marriage relationship with the church, our earthly marriages, must be types of what a need we have for the cross of Christ, for the cleansing of the blood of Christ. When in the end the bride is presented to the bridegroom in glory, without spot, without blemish, this will become clear to us all. It will become clear that she is without spot and without blemish, not because she tidied herself up a bit. It will become clear, not because she was able herself to cover up her sin. It will not be because the bride, looking back at the horror of what she has done and how she has lived, promises, I will do better from now on. None of these. It will be because of the redeeming love of God and the cleansing blood of Christ, the bridegroom, applied by the Spirit. Her sins will be covered in God. God will present her a bride without spot and without blemish. And then he will usher her into the marriage feast, the feast of joy and celebration that will have no end. It is to that that the seventh commandment 
calls us to look forward to. It is that that will be the fulfillment of the love between husband and wife that the seventh commandment is intended by God to protect. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, give us the love for thee and the love for one another as husbands and wives that the seventh commandment calls us to. Thus may we also be quickened in our hope for the perfect marriage feast of the Lamb and the Bride that will come to pass when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hope PR Ministry Podcast. We are a part of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, and we are located in West Michigan. Our goal is to spread our distinctive Reformed beliefs. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to us at hoperwc at gmail.com and visit our website at hopeprchurch.org if you would like to learn more about our beliefs. You can also worship with us every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 5 p.m.